You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. Hi, at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. Ed Ludlow, who's off today? This is Bloomberg Technology. The UK's antitrust watchdog. It strikes again, this time with an investigation into Amazon and Microsoft's cloud services. Details on yet more concerns that US tech giants could be abusing market power. Plus, it is day two in the historic FTX fraud trial. A look into the crypto hedge fund Almeida research and Caroline Ellison's role. And this hour, we have an exclusive conversation with San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly from the Economics Club of New York. You do not want to miss it. We're looking at Amazon also off by 1.4%. Interesting. This is it being eyed in the CMA by the UK in terms of its well, monopolization they are potentially worried about of the cloud market. Remember the FTC analyzing Amazon here in the United States about its marketplace. And of course, this is all in this atmosphere of more regulation coming towards some of these big tech companies and the worry of the prominence they have. Let's just stick on that particular role of Amazon right now. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Thomas Seal for more. And that the CMA is once again trying to show its chops here. They did it with Microsoft and Activision Blizzard, and now they're analyzing Amazon and Microsoft in this case. That's right. It's, it's the, the next one in the series, and Microsoft again in the spotlight for another cloud concern. Microsoft and Amazon between them uh, occupy about 70 to 80 percent of the British cloud computing and storage market, Ofcom found after it had been looking at this for a year, and it's decided there are concerns, and it's, it's given this to the antitrust watchdog, the CMA, uh, which kicks off a huge process uh, again. Amazon itself has come back and said, you know, you're misreading our data. But ultimately, what is the argument of Ofcom? What are they seeing in terms of pricing power that these two players have? Yeah, they really outlined uh, three concerns in the, in the big Ofcom study. One of them is this thing called egress fees, uh, basically exit fees. If you try to take your data out of the cloud, you get charged, especially if it's a big amount of data and more and more people are doing this. Um, this is something that could lock you in. Uh, this is what Ofcom is kind of worrying about. Another thing is interoperability. Lots of big companies want to run more than one cloud, different clouds for different things. That's technically difficult. 
And, and the final thing is discounting for big committed spend. This could incentivize keeping all of your eggs in one basket, uh, and that's not very competitive. That's another worry that, that Ofcom outlined. Amazon has come back and said, look, we disagree with Ofcom's findings. Uh, quite bluntly, they say we're, they're based on a fundamental misconception of how the IT sector functions and the services and discounts that they offer. Remind us, Thomas, like, this is really expensive to be an offerer of cloud. You have to almost be a huge player. How hard is it to have fundamentally a lot of smaller players within this? Yeah, I think uh, Amazon and Microsoft didn't fall into this. They've really built the backbone of the internet. You know, massive data centers, warehouses, subsea cables, increasingly edge data centers which are close to cities so that you get that snappy 5G internet that everyone's going to be increasingly needing. So, you know, they have put a lot of work into maintaining and building this position, but um, Ofcom and now the CMA are going to be looking into, well, can anyone else get into this? Is this going to uh, impact on the kinds of services that we have in the future? Um, and you know, are there potential concerns for what this means for AI, which is going to, you know, people think use even more cloud computing than we use today? Ultimately, we're interested also in just the UK vis-a-vis -vis the US, vis-a-vis -vis Germany too. I mean, the EU has also been looking into competition within the cloud space. How much is that something that some of the big tech companies are having to navigate? I'm really sorry there, I've lost you. Um, I think you were asking about international comparisons. Yes, let's look at Germany for um, a moment. Yes, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one for the CMA because post-Brexit it's sort of out there alone, whereas before it was part of Europe. Um, Ofcom's report does note what's going on in other parts of the world, so uh, notes the FTC looking at this, the EU looking at this, uh, and, and ultimately maybe the CMA becomes uh, you know, more of a sideshow as these much bigger regulatory regimes um, you know, hone in on this same market. And also start to think not just about the impact from, well, work perspective, social media perspective, but now, of course, generative AI and foundational model perspective. Thomas Seal, great to have some time with you. Thank you for laying it out when it comes to Amazon. Now let's get back to antitrust here in the US because Google's trial, well, it's still underway. And in transcripts unsealed by the judge last night, we learned that Apple actually held talks with DuckDuckGo to replace Google as a default search engine for the private mode on Apple's Safari browser. Ultimately, they rejected the idea. Bloomberg's Sarah Ford now joins us from Washington. And yet more sort of detail coming out here of just how much Apple had analyzed other competitive search offerings out there. Yes, and exactly. The unsealing of this testimony last night was really quite extraordinary and a very important part of this case. In fact, the judge himself said that he read through the testimony, which had been taken in a sealed courtroom. Um, he read through it line by line and felt that, that what, what is being said here by these executives really cuts to the heart of the case against Google. Um, and this is, has to do with Google's you know, $12 billion agreement with Apple um, to, that allows it to be the default search engine on all Apple um, iPhones um, and, and other you know, desktops. So it gives them access to a tremendous amount of data. And we know that data and building scale for a search engine is, is actually key to sort of keeping that, that you know, those search results high end and quality and, and dominating the market. I mean, the level of detail, as you say, is extraordinary. DuckDuckGo CEO testifying that, what, he met with Apple 20 meetings and phone calls with various Apple executives, including the head of Safari. Does this, though, ultimately paint a picture that, yes, 
they didn't find a better offering out there than what Google currently serves to the market. They're not favorizing Google because of the money. It's just that it's a better search product for the consumer. Well, that is true. And in fact, there was testimony from the Apple executive who negotiated the deal um, with Google, um, John John Andrea, and he said ultimately they didn't uh, go for an alternative. Uh, he also revealed there had been talks with Bing um, as well in 2018, 2019, um, but they ultimately decided that Google was the best. So certainly that's a, a business case, but I think this testimony is going to be uh, very critical in terms of how the judge ultimately decides about the the market issues and the, the dominance issues. And you know, this is not a jury trial, so the judge will, will be the one to decide this case. And it is, of course, earlier this week that the judge heard from Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, who well, was trying to be out there building Bing as a competitor. And it's in this moment, though, that we feel that there is some competition potentially coming from a Bing with the partnership that they have with OpenAI, certainly as search perhaps pivots in this generative AI world. From all the testimony thus far, is there any read that you're getting as to which direction the judge might end up landing here? I mean, it's still uh, too soon to say, but um, certainly the, the government is putting on the best case that it can. These are, this is a test case in every way. This has never been done before. And um, this afternoon, actually, the um, expert witness for the Justice Department is going to be testifying about market definition. And so that's going to be key, key information that the judge is going to need in order to make this decision. We'll keep abreast of it with your help, Sarah Forden. Thank you very much indeed. All things regulation at the top of this show. Meanwhile, coming up, we're going to be looking at another trial. But this one, well, a fraud one. Sam Bankman-Fried, the disgraced 31-year-old, preparing to convince a jury that his crypto empire wasn't a fraud. And let's take a look quickly at shares. As we go to break, there's plenty of things on the move when you look at the micro detail today. So apart from the macro jobs data, we're looking at individual companies that are currently well, on the downside. On a day of sell-off, Rivian absolutely tumbling. We saw it down by as much as 19%. This is the company, electric vehicle company. It's actually looking to sell well, convertible debt. What does that mean? Well, it could end up boosting the supply of shares out there. So we're seeing a depressing force on the stock. We're off by some 20%, let's call it 19 dollars is where we trade and also looking at lucid group now interestingly this could be falling in sympathy but also the ev maker actually offering a new perhaps cheaper model investors may be reading the worry about whether that's really a price cut in this current environment it's down some nine percent one of the worst performers on the nasdaq 100 today this is bloomberg technology what if everyone at work were an expert communicator what if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. got to get you up to speed with the latest on the trial of former FTX head Sam Bankman fried Pleased to say, not at the courthouse, but here in the New York studio is Shanali Basak, but really keeping the context broad here of now who else is going to be giving evidence and what shocking revelations we could hear from it. Yeah, and I must say, it's interesting, I love being on set next to you, but that courthouse right now is just also fascinating. You have the witnesses one by one starting to come up, including a developer at FTX who has been speaking about his long friendship with Sam Bankman fried since MIT, as well as what he was told while he was working at the company and the safety and security of the firm while he was there. More interestingly, you have Gary Wang, who is the former uh, technology officer, co-founder of FTX, expected to testify as early as today. Remember, Gary Wang was one of the people who had pled guilty and is a cooperating witness for the trial, one of three very important key figures from the very inner workings of FTX. As we know, the prosecution has drawn out that really there were only a few people that knew the extent uh, to which this was allegedly this fraud was carried out. And one of the key people is Caroline Ellison, Ellison, who of course was heading up Alameda Research, which ultimately was attested to be sharing and co-mingling funds from an early day. The Caroline Ellison part of this is just becoming more and more pronounced as this trial goes on. She was brought up both in the prosecution's opening arguments as well as the defense. Mm. For the prosecution, remember that inner circle I was talking about, they were talking about bringing her to the fore along with some of the other co-founders for them to explain their interactions with Sam Bankman-Fried alongside the evidence that will be presented. The prosecution really defines two ways that Alameda had taken money through FTX by means of both cash as well as through its digital wallets. So they will be using Caroline Ellison to show how that exactly had happened and when and what Sam Bankman-Fried knew and what he had actually directed. Now, in the defense part of the argument, they have said that Caroline Ellison was the one that was running Alameda. They had made the case in the defense that one person cannot be, not one person, not one CEO, can be at all places at all times. And as a shareholder of Alameda, had directed Caroline Ellison to do things like hedge the portfolio ahead of the crash that had led to the ultimate bankruptcy of FTX, uh, despite the alleged commingling of the funds. So re- remember, this is Sam Bankman-Fried's former girlfriend mm-hmm. we are talking about, who had a lot of details about how Sam operated himself. It will be up to the jury to decide whether that defense will be sufficient enough uh, to, to really pin a lot of the blame, not just on Sam, but his colleagues who have already pled guilty, by the way. Fascinating. Thanks for keeping us up to speed on it. Shanali Basak there with 
all things FTX. But well, let's go macro now. Let's go to the Economic Club of New York, where I'm pleased to say our own Lisa Abramowitz is sitting down, none other than the San Francisco Fed president, Mary Daly. Listen in. The Fed doesn't need to hike again. Again, I'm going to remind everybody my views are my own, and I don't speak for anyone on the, the committee. But, the, but that is exactly how I think about it. So just instead of um, that, let's go back to the June SCP, where if you remember, or maybe you don't, I'll, I'll remind. In the June summary of economic projections, there were two more rate hikes projected for this year. Then in July, we took one of those rate hikes, and another one in the September SCP was the median outlook. But the bond market has tightened quite considerably, over about 36 basis points since we met in September. Well, that is equivalent to about a rate hike, right? And so then the need to do tightening additionally is not there. So from my own perspective, that's what I look at. You know, that my job as I see it, our job as, as I see it, is not to tighten, just do our part. It's to watch financial conditions. Because monetary policy works, we, we raise the funds rate, and it, it, it moves through all the other interest rates. If financial conditions are sufficiently tight, our work is not necessary because we don't need to boost them more. Yeah, Rich, Does that make sense? Absolutely. And Rich Clarida said today that the rise in yields actually does the Fed's job for it. Would you? Agree with that? Would you sympathize with that kind of sentiment? That is actually how it works, right? If financial conditions tighten, I mean, one of the things that's happened in the last 90 days and certainly in the last uh, few weeks is that financial markets have collectively seem to take on board a variety of things. But one of the things that I heard from many commentators and many of the market outreach I do is that they, they have a general understanding now that we are committed at the FOMC to keeping rates higher for longer in an effort to bring inflation fully back down to 2%. And that recognition, along with all the other factors we could put in our list about why bond yields have risen, are affecting certainly the financial conditions and the tightening. And I see that as a as positive outcome, that we would have tighter financial conditions, because then we can really get the job done of putting inflation back to rest. When is a sell-off something that's welcome from a perspective of finally the market is coming to terms with what the Fed has been saying? And when is it disorderly, disruptive sure. on a level that causes concern? So you always want an orderly repricing over a disorderly repricing. And so far, what I see is this, you know, and this is why we watch it so carefully, but here's how I'm seeing it, is that what we're having, what's happening is financial markets are actually trying to find their footing in the right price for, for things. And they've got to digest a lot of information. One is the supply and demand uh, changes in the treasury space, right? So supply is going up and demand is, is going down, especially from foreign buyers. So that is a one factor to digest. Another factor to digest is Fed policy and forward, forward guidance in the SEP. A third factor to digest is this increasing conversation people are having about whether the real neutral rate of interest is actually risen. So we came into the pandemic pandemic are with it at about 0.5, which means nominal neutral about 2.5. And when people say, oh, the neutral rate might have risen for a variety of factors, I'm hearing everything from maybe it's 5 to something that I would see more likely, which is between 2.5 and, and 3 for the nominal neutral. You know, probably there is, a, we don't know if it's risen, frankly. I don't think anybody really knows. But certainly we should have those conversations. But then markets try to price that in. So all of those factors, and then there's lots of uncertainty in the economy and geopolitical 
political risk and you know our own fiscal risk and so that's what markets do they digest a lot of information and try to find their their footing on it and I think that's what we're seeing but so far it hasn't spilled over into disorderly so far even today when the jobs claims came up and it was sort of I don't know what to make of it, right? So the, that's what the markets are at. You didn't see things shaking up in a, in a wild or disorderly fashion. So, so far, so good. Your bond quote of the day, 470 on the 10-year, I just checked. So that's, it seems like yields are coming in uh, as we speak, just to your point about it not being disorderly. Back in March, when there was this concern about the banking situation, yields were, at the low of March, were about 150 basis points lower than where they are now. Are you seeing the same type of financial distress today that you did back then, even on the peripheries? How do you rationalize why it hasn't materialized in the same kind of way? So March was a unique situation, and we want to learn from that unique situation. But it was a unique situation in this way. We had a bank run, an old, a very you know, old-fashioned but true bank run, where the bank's liquidity was completely squeezed, and it went you know, it, it dissolved in, in a period that was very, it was short, rapid period of dissolution. And then that spilled over to two other banks. Um, and that was the extent. Now, the, one of the things I always remind people of is we have over 4,000 banks in the country and three failed. And all other banks that even felt the stresses, and there were a large number that felt stresses because they were near neighbors in sort of size and uh, balance sheet, distribution, composition, they felt stresses, but they managed those stresses because in part they had been a little more effective at edging their risks. And then the Fed and the with the Treasury support came in with the BTFP, and that produced a lot of calmness in the water. So since that time, banking stresses have really not been something that when you ask people in the community or the business leaders, what are you just top of your worries, that is not something they list. They list inflation, uncertainty, et cetera. So I think one of the reasons that we are seeing this uh, yield rising not spilling back over is that essentially we know what's going on in the banking sector. Investor letters have been published for months saying, here's what this balance sheet looks like, here's what this balance sheet looks like. So there's not a surprise. And the second is because the banking system is safe, sound, and resilient, and we have remedies in place that solved parts of the, of the crisis and the stresses. So I think we're coming in, it's the same thing when you have the rise in yields. We're doing it against a strong economy. We're doing it against a strong a, a solid banking system. So that just means that the, the ripple effects are not going to be tipping things over. The, the, the fragility is not there, right? It's a sound system, and then you have this, and so then you have it able to absorb the, the tension points. One thing that uh, there's been a huge debate around is the long and variable lags. And this really speaks to this question of all of a sudden, if you think that 10-year yields are at 5% rather than 4% or 3.5%, that changes what implication there is into different business models. How much does it change the business model of commercial real estate owners, of different residential real estate owners, of some of the constituents who you speak to on a regular basis? So I'm going to separate. That's a terrific question, but I'm going to unpack it into two parts, if you don't Please. mind. The long and variable lags and the how are people reacting to that? And I have a, I just met with a variety of uh, commercial real estate CEOs with, with national footprints on Monday, so I can bring some of that to this conversation. But let me start with the long and variable lags part. So definitely, there's always a debate. If you want to really get into debate, get a PhD in economics, and you'll spend a lot of time, if you're in macro, debating long and variable lags of monetary <laughs> policy. Um, so here's what we can all agree on. They are, there are lags, 
and they're variable. And then people even debate about long, how long are they? But I go with long and variable lags. And the question is, we know they, that f from the Fed's communications to financial markets went quickly. And then the question is, how long does it take to get through the economy? I'm of the view that we're still seeing the effects of that. We saw it initially in housing. Then we started seeing it in investment. Now we're starting to see it in you know, the labor market and inflation, et cetera. And so it's, it's absolutely happening. And we want to continue to watch that because we ought, we're, with the risk more balanced on the economy, we could as easily, I think at this point, overcorrect than undercorrect. And that's why taking the time to do it right is, is sort of where um, I think we need to be. Now, on what I'm hearing in these this rise in yields, they're less concerned about, they have been less concerned, at least my commercial real estate uh, roundtable, less concerned about the lags in monetary policy as much as this. There is this time when people were in, one of men, one person described it as sort of a, um, it's almost like a foot race, right? But it's not really, it's really just like a, um, I have to see if the Fed will cut rates before I have to refinance my properties. And so you're in a look ahead and you're saying, well, if the Fed cuts rates, like the market suggests they will, market suggested six months ago, early in 2024, or at least by the middle of 2024, then I can, by the time I refinance, I'm golden. But that equation changes if we're higher for longer to get inflation down, or if the nominal, if the yields are just going to be higher, well, then projects that penciled out at near zero interest rates or something much lower, they don't pencil out at five. And so I think one of the things that we, we think a lot about is what's the switch point for commercial real estate? Because you really want that to be an orderly repricing, and so far it has been, rather than a disorderly one. But I think that's something, that's a risk worth watching, is that these higher yields change the psychology of what's possible for people, and they start making those adjustments um, immediately as opposed to in a, a timeline that goes with the refi schedule. Just to build on that, this idea of 5% or 4.8 or 4.7% of long-term rates that's being increasingly priced into markets, how much does that imply a significantly greater degree of distress in some of these areas, like real estate, commercial real estate, that rely on this idea of refinancing five, 10 years down the line? You know, it's, I, I think we have to, and this is one of the things we're going to have to do just as a nation, is when you, if we're in a low, uh, higher interest rate environment in general, and I can't, I don't think we should jump to the conclusion that that's where we are. I think we should have a conversation. Is it going to be the low interest rate environment? Are we going to have a, a nominal neutral of 2.5, or is it going to be something higher? Is Are we going to be fighting inflation from above our target now for a, for a persistent amount of time, or is it going to go back to fighting it from below our target? We don't know the answers yet. So I think what I'm, what I was really important is commercial real estate owners and purchasers and things, they have to be willing to, tip to play the longer game, right? What's the longer game look like and how do I get to the longer game? And I'm hearing this in, in the San Francisco CEO roundtable. Now, they, again, these folks have a national footprint, but I'll share what I learned is that, you know, they're already tranching their properties. 
if you've got really high quality uh, stuff, you're putting all your work in, in terms of leasing into that property. And there are deals to be had, so people with in, with income to, to use, they're they're buying those properties up because you know property ultimately and buildings are valuable down the road. If you have property that you think isn't just in the world of higher interest rates and lower uh, in-office work, then you just say, well, okay, I'm going to go back to land value. And I'm going to not try to spend a lot of time leasing that property or wait it out because, and I think that's the repricing we're going to need to see. We are just going to need to digest some of those losses and, and position for the new world. The, the yields going up, I think it's just... It doesn't change that dynamic. It just brings people's awareness sharply to the problem, right? You could have seen the problem coming, and I think many did, which is why I'm not, um, I don't have alarm bells ringing. Commercial real estate people, they just tell me this all the time, and I have learned to believe them. Uh, you really have to have a strong constitution to be in commercial real estate because it goes through cycles. And the way that the successful ones persist is they recognize that the down point isn't forever, nor is the high point. So they get used to it and they stockpile and they refi early. When they see interest rates going up, they're trying to put stuff into longer maturity so that they can not have to refi at the higher interest rates right away. So I think that's going on, but that is a sector to watch, as all of us know. And this will be just another piece. The higher um, bond yields will be another piece that makes the scrutiny have to be more intense. To connect that to the idea of financial distress, people talk about a Fed put. How high is the bar for the Fed put? How high is the bar for financial distress, for the Fed Reserve to come in and to cut rates and to take actions to add liquidity to the system? How much higher is the bar at a time where inflation is still running at the levels that it's running? So I'm going to separate these two things. I think they get pushed together all the time in a way that I don't think about them, so I want to separate them. So there's monetary policy that's about the two goals that Congress gave us, full employment, price stability. And we raise and lower the funds rate to do those types that work. And because it's made, this is all gets conflated more easily because we have a balance sheet policy. So we use the asset purchases for two functions, market dysfunction and quantitative easing, right, to put additional policy um, accommodation in when we hit the ZLB. So we have both, but I do, they can actually persist separately. So let's take the BTFP. The BTFP didn't change monetary policy. We went in, we saw some stress in the banking sector with the help, with the backstop from the Treasury, opened a BT, the BTFP facility, helped calm the banking stresses, and monetary policy went on. And I think that's the way you sh should think about it. So I, I unpack those things. I hear a lot about the Fed put and this. What I really would do is we have tools that can be used, and the tools we use for financial dislocation are different than the tools we use for monetary policy, and both can occur. So we shouldn't have to give up our promise to the American people, our commitment to achieve our mandated goals and bring inflation back down to price stability because we have some dysfunction in the markets. But I, right now, don't see dysfunction. What I see is prices have gone up for you know, bond yields. Prices have gone down. Yields have gone up for bonds. The 10-year now and other rates look similar to what you know we might have 
have penciled in in the SCP for how much we were going to hold rates higher for longer because of the inflation. And I think they'll respond as the data come in to. I think markets have a better sense now. Although I, you know, I can't be sure of this. I don't want to. I don't want to say things that don't. I don't have certainty about. But it seems there's a, a more more of an understanding about the Fed's reaction function now. And big part of the reaction function understanding that seemed to be missing was that we want to get inflation down to 2%. And in our forecast, we don't see it coming down to 2% like that. And in order to keep it coming down to 2%, we have to keep rates restrictive in order to bring the economy more into balance, the labor market into balance, and inflation down to 2 You talked about vigilance and you talked about agility. And with respect to agility, you wanted to be able to tweak policy according to what you're seeing in markets. And, and one thing that people have been speculating and I'm sure this is sort of one of these theoreticals that make you roll your eyes. Goodness. I never roll my eyes. <laughs> well, I will say, uh, when people talk about what you said in your speech, which is that as inflation falls and as growth slows, that the policy rate, even by not moving, by keeping it steady, is a policy action. It is actually tightening policy. At that point, how agile should the Fed be to make adjustments to the rate so that the restrictive level is the same that might be lowering rates, but not because of financial distress, not because of some sort of recession, not because of weakness? So that's a terrific question. And, and I would argue that we're now entering into the hardest phases of policymaking, right? The hardest part. So I think of phase one is the one we just the one we completed. We, we completed it earlier this year. Rates are too low, inflation's too high. There's only one direction north. So everybody can agree. There's no, nobody's confused. It's just a matter of how quickly can you get to restrictive territory and without causing any um, concerning disruptions. So we've, we've accomplished that, phase one. Phase one was the easy phase. You just have to communicate, we're going that way, inflation will come down. The biggest concern that I had during that phase one, well, I had two, how fast can we go without you know distressing things? And two, um, Oh, how will we communicate that we're doing that? Right? Those were the two things I was worried about. How fast can we go, and how can we communicate that so that we don't lose credibility? Right? So we, because I was worried about the inflation expectations. So that's down. Phase two is fine tuning where we maintain the peak rate, and then phase three is trying to bring it down to two percent. And so right now, the way it's penciled in in the SEP, if the inflation forecast holds, and the inflation forecast you see more generally, policy is growing more restrictive. So you might ask, well, why? Well, I think it's because it's, it's challenging to get that super core inflation down. We've got the easy ones behind us, right? Goods inflation's already come down a lot. Housing inflation is in train. We have to keep watching it. But that super core is going to need persistent work. But if we saw, and the labor market's strong, we're, we're doing this against a very strong labor market. We'll see tomorrow if that persists. But so far, pretty strong, solid labor market, good consumer spending, good GDP growth. I mean, we're, there's nothing about the economy that's faltering. So, but if that should change, well, then of course we could adjust rates so that we keep a level of restriction right for the economy economy we have. I don't really want to try to tell you what that's going to be because honestly that's what the whole speech about is about. We have to tolerate our uncertainty of not knowing what it's going to do next year, but to know what elements we have and how would we react to whatever situation unfolds. That's ultimately humans hate this and markets hate it more. Um, you don't nobody likes uncertainty, right? They want to know people we all want to know exactly what's going to happen. But I think right now 
projecting too confidently what will happen is actually a, a, a policy mistake because then you end up with surprising people and things. So I just I think it's really important that we stick to conveying our reaction function, conveying how we trade off and balance things, how we approach the uncertainties, and then as we get more information, as everybody does, then we'll of course see what to do next. With respect to the actual economy and what's going on and what you see going on there, uh, you talk about the labor market and how strong the labor market is. And I know you've done an incredible amount of research in economic inequality and the worker and the labor market. Through that lens, how do you view some of the labor strikes? What's going on in Detroit? What's going on with respect to the Kaiser Health Systems? What's going on with just uh, the Hollywood strikes, which are sort of resolved, but maybe not? So I think you know the picture of the labor market is broader than just the strikes. I think the strikes get a lot of because they're big labor actions. But but in general, we've seen a rebalancing of of the of the labor relationships with firms. That is a very common occurrence in an extremely tight labor market. Right, their demand for workers is outstripped supply of workers. That means that workers would have more power to say, I want to live here, do this, have this other thing. So workers who aren't in unions and don't have regularly scheduled negotiated contracts, well, they can make those adjustments more continuously. Right. So a lot. I'm sure you've you've experienced this too. But if you were an employer in 22, and even late 21, and you really saw wage demands rise, uh, special circumstances, I want to live in here and, and work in there, and I don't want to come back to the office. A lot of changes in how workers were relating to their employers. And there was also a relative demand shock for low wage workers that you know moved restaurant workers to, and hotel workers to delivery drivers and other things. So that, that whole work situation was changed. I see the the labor uh, actions that have been taken recently is they're on regularly negotiated contract schedules, and those schedules came up, and they say, well, we've got to, a lot's changed since we negotiated the last contract. Pandemic, wage rates have risen. We have not been in continuous negotiations with you, and we want to get in a better negotiation with you to ensure that we have some shared responsibility for the rapidly rising inflation and rapidly rising changes in the contours of the labor market. So I think this is, so to answer your question, I think this is completely predictable given the imbalance we've had between demand and supply for workers. And there are going to be some renegotiations, either in continuous space, like we have been seeing, or when contracts become up for negotiation, you have to renegotiate the terms of employment. What's the difference between renegotiating the terms of your employment and a wage price spiral? Oh, that's a huge difference. So let me, I love that kind of question. Fantastic. <laughs> OK. So straight. <laughs> labor renegotiations are, I'm looking at you know, what I've had to put up, what I've had to deal with as an employee. A lot of it is, I've got this wage, and inflation's going up this, so my real wage is falling. That's something that was commonly happening in 22 in the United States. Real wages were falling for many, many groups of workers, many tiers of wages. And that's something people, workers recognize, right? They recognize when their real wages are falling. They're losing purchasing power. They're falling behind, even though they're earning. So that is what a labor negotiation is. It also could be like in healthcare and things, hours work, terms of trade, you know, schedules, et cetera. The, a wage price spiral is that 
people get wage growth, and then producers, I mean, you know, firms selling, pass that along to consumers. That causes inflation to go up. And then they see that inflation, and they ask for wage growth. And you see this high correlation. A fact that's worth looking at, it's a very cool plot, because it tells you why we're not in a wage price spiral right now, is prior to 85, the correlation between wage growth and price growth was like 0.85. That broke down after the Volcker disinflation, and it really is now like 0 0.25, 0 0.3, et cetera. So you don't have that one-for-one -one pass-through of wages to prices, prices to wages. It just doesn't work that way. And even now, you see wage growth moderating. And I also look at short-run inflation expectations. Short-run inflation expectations are coming down. As they come down, research out of the San Francisco Fed has shown, and others have confirmed this, that Short-run inflation expectations are what people are using when they go in to negotiate wages. And so as those come down, you get release of wage pressure. So we are, the worries about wage price spiral, you know, people were worried about it in 22, and I really, we took that very seriously. We asked how that was going. At this point, those have really abated, and now we're really at a point about getting the wage growth rate to be balanced in the economy, bringing the labor market into balance, adding the kind that you know you need about 100,000 jobs per month to keep pace with the labor force growth. At the last call, we were at 150. So tomorrow's labor market report will tell us whether we've made more progress on that space or just sort of uh, in that same place we've been in. But that's that's how it's different. They're completely different. One keeps me up at night. One is just a natural part of an economy. So I love that when we were speaking ahead of this, uh, we were talking about anecdotal data. And I said, you know, I love that you study the sociology of markets. And anecdotes are really important. And she said, I don't view them as anecdotes. They're qualitative data. I think and I said it that way. You yeah. did. And you corrected me. You said, absolutely <laughs> not. I wouldn't call it anecdotes. It is qualitative data. What is the qualitative data or the but, anecdotes that you, the yeah, conversations you're having? Here's why I don't call them anecdotes. <laughs> because anecdotes are like I talked to Bob in the grocery store. And then I now I know everything. That and that's what you know, people trade anecdotes all the time because they heard one person, two people, four people at a party say it. At the Fed, the regional Fed presidents in particular, I think it's one of the big benefits of having a regional Fed when the when the folks who set this up set it up, I think they, they thought this would happen and it does happen, is the regional Fed presidents and the entire regional Fed teams, we're in our districts collecting qualitative information by talking to many people like you, having roundtables, et cetera, but then we write it up. And so the difference in an anecdote and qualitative information is we, we quantify the qualitative information. If one person says it, it does not mean it's the thing we should take on as fact. But if 50 people say the same thing, well, that's an early warning sign or a, some flavor that helps us you know, push, flush out what the, um, what the what the aggregate data are telling us. And what the qualitative data are telling me are really, I'll, there's many things, but I'll tell you a few. So at the beginning of this year, I'd say most of my conversations when I asked them, what's your biggest concern? They said recession. Then it switched to stagflation. They thought we were gonna have high inflation forever, just low growth like we did before the pandemic. And now it's like, now I say, what's your biggest worry? And this is really remarkable. They say, well, I'm really worried about generative AI and how it changes my business in 10 years. I'm really worried we're not educating our population enough to keep pace with the jobs we are creating. So why am I focusing on those? Because those are 
longer-term concerns, which means the anxiety they have about their short-term business has gone down and is being replaced with the things that, sh that really should keep business leaders up at night, right? What is, how is this going to transform my business? Do I have the workforce I need, not today, but five years from now, 10 years from now? What do I need to do in my communities to ensure that we're durable? So that has been a sea change. And then when you meet, when you drill down, like with commercial real estate leaders, of course, they're, wor they're thinking hard about, okay, I've got this property, what's the future? And th but their attitude, it was really interesting, uh, across the board, doesn't matter what position they're holding, is they say, they're gonna be losses, but they're gonna be opportunities. And what I'm trying to do in my business when I went around to each of them is say, I'm trying to minimize the losses and maximize my ability to see and take the opportunities. And I, so I see that as a positive change in the environment we're in. And it's why you know, I said in, this, in the speech that the recession fears are being replaced by soft landing. Soft landing is just in their description something that happens that doesn't break the economy and bring all their attention to how do I manage through a, a significant downturn. And I am not seeing that in their, when I take their, the temperature on that, I'm seeing instead they're talking about these longer term issues that they're grappling with. Does that mean that they're hoarding labor? reluctant to cut jobs because they do have this expectation that even if there is some sort of slowdown, there is going to be a brighter future ahead with not as many qualified uh, employees available to do the jobs that need to get done. So I, I'm gonna, I have the benefit of having done this uh, work for a while. I was at the Fed long before I became the president and I've been a labor economist my whole career. So I would like to broaden that, that, that part out just a tad. So it is very common when employers go through big shocks that that carries over into their behavior. So let's go to um, the fact that in the financial crisis, employers had to cut nominal wages. They hate cutting nominal wages. They, they, because it demoralizes employees, et cetera. So that had a long tail. They had to fire a lot of workers, right? They had to let go. And they, you know, for a lot of employers, if you're not the very largest employers in our country, you're, you're letting go of people you know each and every member of your team, and you had to let those workers go. And then you had to cut nominal wages. It's extremely painful. So then they hired extraordinarily slowly and kept working people overtime and other things just so they didn't have to be in a situation where they would have to let go of workers should another shock come. So now what I'm seeing is the opposite of this. In the pandemic, people lost workers because they were afraid to come to work or they just they decided to take early retirement or they moved away. And so now employers are like, oh gosh, I better keep people. So I think we have to put certain amount of this behavior we're seeing to that. But the other part is, and this is another benefit of doing this for a while, I think, is another part is that it, the way it works in most cycles is that the very first thing that happens is hiring slows. The second thing that happens is layoffs occur. You don't have a lot of firms laying people off before they slowed their hiring. So when I'm looking at metrics for what I think is happening to the labor market, I'm looking at hiring statistics, job filling rates. You might have postings out there, but you're not filling. And what I'm seeing is a general slowdown, but not a cliff. But you know, obviously, if there was a significant downturn, then, then businesses have to resize. But we're not seeing that yet. Even the layoffs we've seen have come in the tech sector, where they got a little bit 
ahead of themselves on growth and then had to rebalance their uh, workforce to meet the actual growth they were going to have. So I, I don't see anything out there that is ringing an alarm bell about the workforce. And people say labor hoarding. I kind of think of it as we're just always fighting the last war. And you fight the last war of we had to lay off a lot of people. You don't want anybody new. You fight the last war of, oh my gosh, I lost a lot of people. You hang on tight. We're also in a very tight labor market from the employer's perspective. You know, it's, it's, it's loosening. But from an employer's perspective, they still have to spend a lot of their time finding workers to replace workers who leave, or if they want to open a new slot, that's expensive. So they definitely want to hang on to as many people as possible. I have to open it up to questions in a second, but I do want to just ask you this before I do that. What do you think right now is the biggest misconception? We're going to leave Lisa Bromowitz there with San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly talking about the job cuts in the tech sector, talking about the implications of generative AI, talking about some of the labor relationships that we've seen overall in Hollywood. Much more on Live Go if you want to be keep on listening in to that macro perspective. But stay with us on Bloomberg Technology. We'll be back with much more to do with the labor market and women within it. It's a Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So we've just been hearing from Mary Daly about the labor market. Let's talk about women's presence within it. Because Chief, it's the private membership network designed to connect and support women executive leaders. It's hosting Chief X, first conference in Palm Springs, bringing hundreds of members together in person, thousands virtually. We want to check in on really what's being said by some of the key speakers they've had across the tech world. They've had, of course, the CEO of Slack there, for example. We welcome Chief CEO and co-founder Carolyn Childers now from, I'm pretty sure, always great to be in person. What is the atmosphere like? How much resilience and optimism is there among women in executive roles right now? 
Yeah, well, thanks for having us. It's really exciting to join from Chief X, our first ever um, conference for Chief here in Palm Springs. Um, and the energy has just been really magical. Um, so Chief is the most powerful network of senior executive women, and we really built Chief under the mission of changing the face of leadership. Um, and we do that by building a great community that can come together and support each other and build the connections that are needed to really tackle the the loneliness that, and challenges that can come with senior executive mm. leadership. And yeah. it's been really exciting to have a new experience of Chief X, of being able to bring women from all over the US and UK here in Palm Springs to be able to really deepen those relationships and have even more inspirational conversations. Give us the context, the backdrop, though, with which some of these executives find themselves. Because, look, we are seeing actually record participation rate of women in the labor force, but then there's nuance to it. And there's been studies, I think, just announced in the last day or so, McKinsey, Lean In, and Foundation, of course, Cheryl Sandberg's, looking at how perhaps women aren't managing to break into managerial roles. We're actually seeing more executive levels, C-suite, but not at the lower sort of funneling points. How are you talking about that? Yeah, so, I mean, Chief is focused on senior executive women. Over 40% of our membership are actually C-suite. And that's where you're actually starting to see some shifts. Um, so we've moved from 25% to 28% of um, C-suite positions being held by women. But importantly, even within C-suite, um, women of color are only 6%. And we have not seen any changes in those numbers. Um, and then, as I think you were pointing to, there's still very much this broken rung. Um, so even as we're starting to see some progress in the C-suite, that advancement is going to be really challenged when we're still seeing a lack of progress um, in that middle management level. Um, yeah. And that's where, um, even though you also see that ambition is so much greater, women are more interested in participating in the in the workplace. People have greater ambition of wanting to go up the corporate ladder. One of the things that is really highly pointed to is flexibility being such a key part of allowing for that ambition to become reality. And what about and in I the think tech what sector? are really facing right now is companies that are pulling people back into the workplace and removing some of that flexibility, and that's going to be a real challenge for us to continue to push these numbers. Yeah, Carolyn, dwell in on that because you're a leader in the tech sector. How much are you mm -hmm. seeing a lack of flexibility or more in the sector than which we work? Yeah, I mean, I think that you are seeing that um, a lot of companies are starting to pull back on a lot on those policies. Um, and I think some of that has to do with um, both the economy and in a way of, of somewhat reducing their workforce by saying, like, some people will opt out of that and mm -hmm. that will actually help them as they go through workplace reductions. But I think what the people aren't keeping in mind is that the people who need the flexibility the most are women and underrepresented minorities. Those are the people who have found the most benefit from the flexibility that has come into the workplace over the last several years. So all of these companies who have also had these commitments to DEI, that's really going to challenge them as they really pull back on the flexibility in the workplace. Important message. And it's interesting how some of this focus on DEI moves with all the economic, re economic realities with which we face as well. I'm interested in your own realities because, I mean, Chief is a unicorn from last time we 
counted. And you were raising money March 2022. You raised 100 million. You were 1.1 billion dollar valuation. Is that still standing? And how is your business growing? Yeah, well, we are 20,000 members strong at Chief. Um, it has been just phenomenal to see that growth over the last several years. But there's still 5 million women in the U.S. alone who are VP level and above. So the opportunities for Chief to become an even more powerful community, a powerful network, to really be able to create the support and the change that is needed um, to change the face of leadership, there's still so much opportunity for us. Um, and while I think there is this um, pressure uh, across the ecosystem where companies are pulling back on their commitments to DEI and they are pulling back on their commitments to ESG, yeah. um, what is needed more than ever are good leaders, regardless of, of gender, regardless of race. Um, and there's still an investment that needs to be had there. And there's still a place for chief to play that role. Yeah. Um, while also really continuing to push companies who, you know, they they made the commitments when it was easy. And how do you make sure that people are really still holding to those statements and the importance and the benefits yeah. that we all have grown to recognize exist for companies who have great diversity in their workforce. Carolyn Childers, Chief CEO, co-founder, we thank you for your time. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Check out our podcast when you got the moment. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.